Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Hello. My name is Scott Malone. I'm a Boston Bureau Chief for Reuters News, and I'll be your moderator today. Um, our panelists, starting from my immediate right, are Steve Bashir, former governor of Kentucky, Kathleen Sebelius, the 21st United States Secretary for Health and Human Services and former governor of Kansas, Jim Douglas, former governor of Vermont, Jack Markell, former governor of Delaware, and joining us remotely, we have Ted Strickland, former governor of Ohio. This event is being presented jointly with Reuters, and it is part of the Andalo series on current science controversies. We're streaming live on the websites of the Forum and Reuters, and we're also streaming on Facebook. You can also participate uh, in the live chat that's happening on the Forum site right now. More than 115 Americans die from opioid overdoses every day. It's a crisis that shows little sign of abating. Emergency rooms tracked by the CDC reported a 30% jump in overdoses in just one year. This isn't the first time that the Forum has addressed this public health crisis. Last year, Steve and Ted joined another panel of governors to discuss the magnitude of the problem on both the state and national level. Um, despite the fact that so many of us have been touched by this issue, public surveys show that Americans are divided on whether addiction to pre prescription painkillers can be treated effectively. This creates a bit of a mismatch between public perception and policy making. Uh, today, we'll take a look at some of the measures that have been working or not working on the state level. Uh, and we'll also look at discrepancies between state and federal funding and messaging around the opioid emergency. Steve, I understand that many Americans don't understand how or whether treatment can work. Um, tell us a little bit about this gap in understanding and, and why it's important. Well, I think everybody in this room and I think most Americans uh, do understand that we've got probably the biggest health care crisis in many a year uh, with this opioid uh, crisis that is, is just devouring uh, our country right now. And I think they understand some of the stuff that we as governors have done and are doing in our states, you know, with getting naloxone out on, uh, in the hands of uh, first responders to save lives and the prescription monitoring systems that are used to cut out on doctor shopping and closing up the pill mills. I think all of that is at least generally understood, but the one big area that I think people don't have much understanding of is the treatment area. And 
uh, I think Dr. Blinden uh, here with his group did a, um, a poll that indicated that only about half of Americans uh, feel that there is an effective long-term treatment uh, for addiction. And the rest of them just really don't know. And I'll tell you why I think they feel like that is because we haven't really been on a national scale very successful in treatment. They don't look out and see, look at all these people who've recovered and are back into our workforce and are being productive citizens. And, and that's because we haven't made the kind of commitment. This is the one area. Uh, we can do more in every area of this problem, but this is the one area where I think we've fallen woefully short, and, and that is this treatment area. Give you a kind of a comparison. You know, when HIV AIDS hit in this country, we ended up declaring that a national uh, epidemic, and we came up with a national response. We spent the money necessary, and we got control of that. We haven't really done the same thing so far with opioids. When you compare that this last Congress is putting, I think, $6 billion in, that's a huge amount of money. But when you compare it with the $32 billion that's being spent in the same time period on HIV AIDS, it just shows you that I don't think we're there yet on the commitment and, and we've got to ramp it up. Okay. Um, Kathleen, states don't operate in a vacuum. Um, talk to us a little bit about the role of the federal government here and, and what solutions should belong to the states and what can only be done with federal resources and how should we balance those, those competing abilities? Well, I agree with what Steve has said um, in terms of treatment being one of the areas that's the least understood and least well-funded. And this has to be a partnership. I mean, this problem has been growing for 20 years. It's not going to be solved in two months or by one bill. So I think a couple of things from the federal level are absolutely essential. Clarity of policy, which we do not have right now. Um, do we believe that treatment is an essential part? Then ideally we would have an administration um, that would cease trying to take payment for treatment away from millions of people who desperately need it. Stop trying to roll back Medicaid expansion. Stop undermining the framework of the Affordable Care Act, which said that every insurance policy sold to individuals had to have substance abuse and addiction treatment as a part of those insurance policies. That didn't exist before 2014. So we have this massive, on one hand, expansion of access to treatment and, and that's being fought. The Justice Department continues to believe this is a criminal justice issue, lock them up, which has been a proven failure and cost a lot of money. And you know, instead of a public health crisis, which I think not most governors would, uh, adopt as well as a lot of American public. So that's clear. The other thing is Congress, I think, has an obligation as a partner to have sustained and substantial funding. Steve already referred to the fact, I think you're actually a little high. My last numbers say about four and a half billion real dollars is on the table right now. There's more being talked about, but four and a half billion dollars. Experts say we need 60 over 10 years. States cannot build an infrastructure for a workforce that frankly doesn't exist. We need healthcare providers, we need trainees, we need people who deal with addiction, and they can't build treatment beds and other facilities with short-term dollars. So 
governors don't have tons of extra money in their budget, if any. And I think unless the federal government says, follows up on their health crisis declaration with really substantial and sustained dollars, um, this will not be solved. I, I would say the third thing is just an, a recognition that we have a crisis that people are able to flip types of drugs. So the move from opioid to a cheaper version and one would say stronger version called heroin and then on to fentanyl is I think an illustration that treatment is the only way to stop this. This isn't an opioid issue, it is an addiction issue. And unless we deal with it as an addiction issue, it, it continues to go on. Right. Ted, um, I know that your state of Ohio has been particularly hard hit by, uh, by opioid addiction. Can you give us a little bit of the view um, of the problem as you see it from there? Well, greetings from uh, the heartland. And um, I can report to you that um, this crisis is continuing to grow in Ohio. Uh, in one week, we had um, 18 people die just in Columbus, Ohio alone. Ohio has lost, in the last uh, 12 months, well over 5,000 lives to this um, surge. Um, and I, I would just like to say that I agree with what Steve and Kathleen have said. We need resources in order to fight this surge. But I believe we also need a public awareness campaign. Everybody talks about this being a crisis, and, and it is. But uh, I think as a country, we have not yet recognized how serious it is. We are losing more Americans to this surge one year than we lost during the entire Vietnam War. And um, uh, recent polling um, by the Harvard School and Dr. Blinden indicated that, um, that Americans do not consider uh, increasing national action to reduce these deaths um, uh, a major priority. Only 24% of Americans uh, listed it as uh, a major priority. So I think um, I think there needs to be a public uh, a public uh, information campaign carried out. Uh, I think we need to uh, recognize, as Kathleen has said, that this is not just a um, uh, an opioid uh, problem. Uh, we are seeing here in Ohio, and I believe across the country, uh, increased deaths related to methamphetamines mixed with cocaine, mixed with fentanyl. And uh, so what I, would, what I would suggest is that we need to understand that we cannot solve this problem without a plan. We need uh, resources, and we need to recognize that there is no quick fix. Um, people who enter into treatment need more than just medically assisted treatment. Um, the, the, the important phrase with medical assistant is the assisted part. There is so much more that needs to be done in terms of wraparound services, social supports, and the like, if we're going to enable individuals to uh, rid themselves of these addictions. Okay. And that uh, segues very nicely into my next question, which is for you, Jim. Uh, together with Steve, you were among the former governors on um, President Trump's commission on com combating drug addiction and the opioid crisis. Um, 
one of those recommendations had to do with stigma and, and combating it. Can you talk to us a little bit about the recommendations and, and why stigma was something that, that you focused on? Let me first clarify that Steve and I weren't on the President's Commission, yeah. but we were in a group at the Bipartisan Policy Center that made recommendations to Governor Christie and his uh, colleagues, and we were delighted that he um, uh, embraced a number of them. Uh, I think they had a, a very good report. Um, I, I think uh, following up on the comments of my colleagues, this is a key element in our uh, efforts to combat the crisis that we're discussing today. Uh, there is a tremendous stigma. Um, Ted referred to some uh, uh, polling um, information from, uh, from Harvard. I, I uh, read some, uh, am I allowed to mention another institution? Johns Hopkins <laughs> or Brand X, whatever you call it. Uh, um, but, but they did some similar uh, surveying and, and found that um, uh, the American public has a, a less positive view of people with opioid dependencies than they do of people with mental health problems. And, uh, and what was even more troubling, I think, in that study is that providers have the same perceptions. So we've got a lot of work to do to address the, the stigma, uh, to make it clear um, to that this is a problem we all need uh, to address. We have to have all oars in the water. We have to recognize it as the public health emergency that it is. We appreciate the President's declaration and, and uh, hope that there will be some follow-up. A couple of other specific uh, thoughts, Scott. Uh, uh, more than half of the pregnant women who are opioid dependent uh, are on Medicaid. So, so our, our federal partners, I think, uh, in that program need to be uh, more involved, more aggressive in providing support to them. Um, the current governor of Vermont, Phil Scott, has said that every day a child is born in our little state uh, to an opioid-addicted mom. And, and obviously across the country it's even more substantial. So that has to be a priority. And uh, a third thought is that in, uh, in Scott County, Indiana, a few years ago, there was a, uh, an HIV and hepatitis C outbreak um, uh, that stemmed from um, dirty needles and people uh, with opioid dependencies. And Governor Mike Pence issued an executive order uh, to provide uh, syringe services to that county. And uh, after that, uh, HHS mentioned that there are hundreds of counties across the country that have that similar um, profile and likelihood of an outbreak. So we have to get over that part of the stigma too. Uh, to make uh, services available so that people can get on the road to recovery, which is what we, we all want as a country. Okay. Uh, Jack, as governor of Delaware, you signed into law a bill that cracked down on patients' abilities to um, abuse drug, drugs by doctor shopping, you know, getting multiple prescriptions, um, and some other regulations that, that have led to fewer prescriptions being written for, for opioids. Um, that, I understand, didn't play out quite as initially anticipated. Could you talk a little bit about the experience? Yeah, I mean, it's really the law of unintended consequences. And you think you're making progress over here and you're reducing uh, prescription uh, drug abuse and then people go to other alternatives uh, like heroin. And so, you know, it's, 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 it's whack-a-mole on steroids. And uh, so I think, I, and I, you know, our, our, our current governor, uh, Governor Carney, you know, continues to focus uh, on, on sort of both sides of it, which I think is... Uh, really important, um, and just the whole story of how this has become a crisis. I mean, I think was really well documented in, in the book uh, Dreamland. Um, you know, talking both about the uh, um, the addictive uh, uh, characteristics of the opioids themselves, 
paired at the same time with, frankly, a pretty incredible business model for, um, you know, villages in Mexico, which have come up and sort of really, uh, you know, gone into some of our smaller towns and uh, uh, focused on the, the, the heroin trade. Um, so, I mean, it's, this is a massive, massive problem. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful and I'm optimistic, and including on the stigma issue that uh, just came up, because I've seen uh, in our state, and my guess is elsewhere, the, the people who have been the most effective uh, at dealing with the stigma issue are the family members of those who have lost loved ones. In, in Delaware, there's a group called Attack Addiction. And I don't know, frankly, how they find the, the personal strength to turn their personal tragedy into something that's better for everybody else. I think if it were, you know, if it were my child, I'd probably still be curled up in fetal position. But uh, there is a group of families who have been, you know, really taken, taken this on. Uh, they've developed a very powerful coalition, and they have really been the ones behind um, so much of the good policy uh, that has come out in, in our state, and we're all learning from each other. Great. Okay, well, uh, the opioid problem has many effects, including on local economies. Um, let's take a moment to look at this Reuters clip that talks about how the ep epidemic can hit businesses and smaller towns. In January and February last year, the primary ambulance service in Indiana County received six heroin-related calls. In the first two months of this year, it responded to 61. Over a period of time from June to December of 2016, our organization experienced well over $100,000 in operational losses due to the response to opioids. Businesses, too, are struggling. They're finding it hard to find drug-free employees. You know, you're trying to grow your business, you have opportunities, and we tried to hire last year 50 people to fill a myriad of positions. We narrowed it down to 120. Out of that 120, 40 people either did not pass the drug test or they had a criminal background. And the opioid crisis, despite national attention, shows no signs of abating. And the costs just keep on climbing. Jim, you've talked a bit about the need to have a, a healthy young population to boost economic opportunity. Um, what have you seen in Vermont that, that can help with this? Well, there's another crisis uh, out there, frankly, uh, might be the topic of another <laughs> forum, and that's the dem demographic crisis, especially in the northeastern United States where aging rapidly. Um, in Vermont, we have uh, net out-migration now, more people moving to other states than moving in. Our workforce is shrinking. Number of high school graduates is declining uh, by uh, one to one and a half percent every year. Last year, we had the lowest number of births since records have been kept uh, in our state. So we've got a, a real <coughs> critical economic uh, challenge. And I often said to Vermonters, we've got to have everybody uh, healthy and able to show up to work um, or the state's trajectory is going to be uh, very, very problematic. So um, that's an important reason, I believe, to get, in addition to all the others, to get uh, people the treatment uh, they need, get them on the road to recovery. And, um, and uh, the current uh, governor in Vermont has deployed uh, personnel from the state labor department to go to all the recovery centers and work with people who are in treatment to, to try to get them back on the road to, to gainful employment. I, I've believed for a long time that it has to be a multifaceted approach. Uh, we're focusing on treatment today, but I, I launched a program I called DETER, which is an acronym for Drug Enforcement, Treatment, Education, and Rehabilitation. And uh, we attacked all aspects of the, uh, of the challenge, and I think we, we have to continue to do so if we're going to, uh, if we're going to succeed. 
Kathleen, what are some of the uh, barriers that, that, that keep people from getting back into the workforce after they've, they've grappled with addiction? Well, I think a lot of um, application forms uh, disqualify you <coughs> from the outset. Questions about drug use and what has been your past experience. And if that's a, a stoplight at the front end, that actually is a huge barrier to a lot of folks. We've made, I think, a, a strategic mistake. My early jobs in out of college were in the criminal justice area. And we have lots of people who are um, uh, recipients of the lock em up policies uh, that dealt with drug users uh, in a very punitive fashion for decades. Most prisons have cut programs uh, to the bone that, again, uh, resources haven't been there. So we have streams of people who are coming out of institutions who have never had treatment options and could be productive members of society, but absent some kind of treatment initiative, I think they stand uh, to look at failure. And I think the stigma is heavily over the existing work population. Some people who are working are terrified of seeking treatment because they feel it they could be fired or they could be disqualified. I am terribly alarmed by what was announced yesterday, we don't even know what the ramifications will be, but the president's announcement that all of the agencies, housing, uh, agriculture, which deals with food stamps, HHS, which has Medicaid uh, as part of it, need to look at ways that um, they can tighten up requirements, can essentially restrict uh, folks from becoming part of those programs, particularly people who are not job ready. Will you talk about somebody who is struggling with some addiction? Um, food may be an essential part of that struggle. Housing, supportive housing may. So if we begin to disqualify um, addicts from accessing uh, the basic wraparound services that have already been referenced, in addition to making it difficult, I mean, we're in for a, a long-term total disaster. I would say, Scott, one of the most terrifying things I learned as secretary, and this used to come from the military leaders, 40% of our age-ready um, young Americans could not pass a qualification to be in the armed services right now, 40%. And you think about a national security crisis, that's a huge crisis for this country to be in. So not only is it not a productive <laughs> workforce, but we are left very vulnerable if among our population, we, we couldn't have a draft tomorrow if we were attacked because we have almost half of that age appropriate population who was incapable because of various health reasons and addiction is one of them of qualifying or passing an exam. Pretty terrifying. One of the, the, the key steps in fighting addiction at the individual level is treatment programs. Um, Steve, why don't you talk a little bit about the role that, that private sector partnerships can play in, in building this out? In this we country. had a, I don't know if it's a unique uh, situation in Kentucky, but certainly uh, an interesting one. Um, when I ran for governor in 2007, I defeated an incumbent. And when we came in, I found that he had uh, partnered with a couple of, of folks in the private sector who were very interested in, in the addiction problem. 
and they had started building residential treatment centers with private funds. And that was a darn good thing. And my, my wife and I both, you didn't Jane say and I. During the campaign, I'm no. Sure. <laughs> no. But after it was over, after it was over. And so we picked it up and, and, uh, and went to those business folks and kept it going. And uh, we now have 17 of them. Uh, in the state and their residential treatment centers, they, you know, folks can stay a year or whatever they have to in order to, to uh, they get those wraparound services right. that Ted was talking about. You know, th this whole uh, crisis is also an opportunity in one way. Uh, in Kentucky, while I was governor and I'm a Democrat, I had a Republican Senate and a Democratic House and it was the issue that finally allowed me to break through that hyper-partisanship that not only infects Kentucky but infects this whole country to the point that it is destroying this whole country in my, in my opinion. And uh, it allowed me to bring Republicans and Democrats together at the table and actually talk and get something done. And obviously if there's an issue that's not partisan, it's this one. I mean, Republicans, Democrats, and Independents are all dying out here. You know, it, it, it's no respecter of political party or anything else. And it's no respecter of economic level. I mean, you have the richest families affected as well as the poorest families affected. So this is an opportunity uh, in addition to solving a huge crisis of solving another big crisis in our country. And that's this partisanship crisis mm -hmm. that is holding us back from really moving this country forward in a in hundred different ways. Okay. Um, health insurers and drug distributors say that they're taking a lot of steps to rein in over prescription of opioids. Um, what collectively, anyone really is free to jump in on this one, what's, what's your view of, of how well they're doing and are, are they doing enough on these fronts? I think there's so much more to be done. Um, I mean, one piece is on the doctors, and I know the doctors, uh, you know, push back very, very hard on this. They don't want anybody getting, in you know, in, into the patient-doctor relationship. I understand that. I respect that. But when you see people who, um, uh, you know, may have had a, a tooth removed being given 30 Percocet, even when the parents request that they be given, you know, something, one pill of something much less powerful, it's a problem, and I think there's still tremendous education uh, and advocacy uh, to be done there. On the insurance side, um, our um, uh, Attorney General, Matt Den, very creative guy, has, has launched a program, we got a bill through the legislature, where uh, the Department of Justice is actually now taking on uh, patients, representing patients who are having problems getting, their, getting insurance, getting treatment. Uh, and I'm not sure that that exists elsewhere, but the government itself is literally uh, representing uh, these, these individuals to make sure whether it's a private provider or, or Medicaid representing them. And as he said, you know, that tends to, when, when these folks re realize that a lawyer has gotten involved, it tends to clear up a lot of the, uh, uh, the, the bottleneck. And yeah. so I think, I mean, it's a pretty dramatic step, uh, but I think these are the kinds of things that are necessary. And finally, I mean, I just, I think so much of the treatment, unfortunately, is very shallow treatment. And, you know, one of the most depressing places you can go is to a, um, a clinic where everybody's standing in line for their methadone, for their methadone um, uh, without getting, you know, many of the wraparound services that were described earlier. I mean, if we don't get to the root of these issues and give people a chance really to clean themselves up, uh, you know, we're trading one kind of addiction for another.
I think it's getting better, Scott. I read a report from Blue Cross Blue Shield in our state that the number of opioid prescriptions uh, has declined 20% over the last six months. And I think uh, prescribers across the country are beginning to understand that they have a key role to play in, in addressing this, uh, this crisis. Uh, you mentioned teeth jack, and I was also pleased to see a recent report that the American Dental Association has passed a resolution uh, encouraging its members to um, be better educated, to limit their uh, dosages of prescriptions and, and get more involved as well. So I think the tide is turning a little. Uh, Steve and I have both had uh, our spouse's uh, uh, recent experiences with, uh, with uh, injuries that uh, resulted in substantial overprescribing of, of uh, opioids. And uh, so I, I hope we're on the right track. Ted, um, how are we doing as a, as a nation in terms of you know, combating pill mills and, and that problem, which kind of leads to, feeds this issue? Well, we're doing, we're doing, we're doing much, much better. Um, but as I have emphasized in the past, this problem really began, I think, uh, in part because of the irresponsible um, use of these medications by irresponsible profit-seeking physicians. And um, some of them have gone to jail, thankfully. And in, in my, um, you know, in my region of Ohio, it was a, a particular problem um, where um, uh, physicians would set up these pill mills and uh, sell prescriptions, basically, for $75 cash without accepting insurance or credit cards uh, or anything, only, only cash. And uh, when I called the uh, Ohio Medical Association, their first response to me was, um, we cannot tell our physicians how to practice medicine. But uh, the fact is that's changed. Things are much better in that regard. But I, I, I continue to believe that, um, as, as I think Jack made reference to root causes, this scourge is affecting every segment of society from the richest to the poorest. And I think we need uh, to put some resources into research uh, to try to identify some of the, some of the root causes um, and whether or not uh, just providing appropriate treatment is, is going to solve the problem. I think has, has been uh, mentioned here several times, providing comprehensive or wraparound services to people. Um, there is no, there is no uh, silver bullet to dealing with these addiction problems, but um, we've got to make sure that everybody, including the pharmaceutical companies, the medical community, political leaders, and law enforcement are all working together to try to find the, the appropriate solutions. Scott, I would, I would say that the House and Senate bills that are currently pending uh, both have additional directives to NIH to do more research. One of the missing pieces, um, you know, the shift to pain treatment in the 90s, I think it was very positive for a lot of patients, um, but had some unintended consequences. What, what's pretty clear is that there's not enough substantial research on what is the long-term impact. We know there's a short-term impact on pain management, um, post-surgery, post-trauma, but very little or sketchy long-term impact. So that's one big piece of the puzzle. 
but I think, again, it, it begs the, the sort of federal-state partnerships. The states have to be the front line of the treatment centers and the you know, funding for the gaps that exist and identifying people and working with employers. I think the federal government has research and the appropriate, to me, law enforcement is uh, really, again, cracking down on whether it's heroin or fentanyl, which basically come in uh, from other countries. So even if we stop opioid overprescription, if we uh, have success on that level, if people can just flip to a cheaper, um, but frankly, more sustainable high, we haven't, we've done whack-a-mole all over again. So I think it's, it begs for, you can't do one thing we have to do all these things, and we got to do them for a period of time, or we will never work our way out of what has been 20 years building. Yeah, long sustained effort is is the only answer. It's yeah. just like you said, if, if we don't get in this and stay in this, and if we don't get a plan together yeah. that everybody buys into. I mean, this, this legislation, the budget stuff that just passed, uh, I mean, three or four billion dollars in there, and it's all good ideas, And uh, but it's we're basically scattergunning. You know, yeah. I mean, just a shotgun approach, well, let's try for this and try this for a year or two. And, you know, we need leadership that steps up and says nationally, this is a crisis, it's an epidemic, we're going to take it on and we're going to solve it. And the states need to get on as partners and all of us are going to be in this together. And we got to kind of reorient our doctors and hospitals and everybody just like we did with the AIDS epidemic to, to really deal with this and get a handle on it and get some control out of it. And, you know, until we do that, we're just going to keep, we're, we're doing good stuff, but it's not going to be good enough. How, how broad is the gap between the, the funds that states need to combat this issue and, and what they're getting from the feds, and how would you address that, given the opportunity to do so? <laughs> well, you know, uh, it's a huge gap. And look, when you talk about treatment, and we've all talked about this, I mean, these 30-day programs, uh, you, I think for most people, you might as well not have them, uh, because it, this has got to be a sustained but the lucky, the lucky people these days yeah. are the ones who get 30 right. days. Oh, yeah. 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 But these residential treatment centers are, are probably one of the main things we're going to have to do, and that's expensive. That's real expensive. And none of us in our states ever had the kind of money it takes yeah. to do that. Now, because of my hero over here that got the ACA uh, into effect and helped me do it in Kentucky, uh, Kathleen, uh, those 10 essential benefits included, as she mentioned, you know, treatment for addiction and for mental health. And my gosh, uh, that, that's been a lifeline uh, for us. But even then, it's, it's not enough. But I think we also don't have the workforce. Yeah. Um, you know, we talked about stigma earlier, Jim did, and I think, Jack, you referred to it. Um, I've done some work on this issue with the Aspen Health Strategy Group, a bipartisan effort again with former governors. Uh, Tommy Thompson is my partner on this. And one of the research issues was done among healthcare providers. And healthcare providers regard treat, treatment of addiction and those individuals who are skilled in treatment of addiction as sort of a lower level of, of health care. It has its own stigma within the healthcare profession. Fewer doctors want to do it. Fewer nurse practitioners want to do it. It's not regarded as a, 
either esteemed or well-paid. So we have an, a problem with if you have treatment beds, if you can put that physical infrastructure together, who's going to work there? And how many people, if we adequately are going to deal with folks in all kinds of settings, who is it that's going to be in that pipeline to come forward and say, all right, we're going to step up and, and do this work? Because I think the stigma for patients is equally apparent in the provider community, which is right. pretty terrifying. And certainly the, the stigma goes far beyond that. That's obviously a, a critical piece of it. Um, Jack, why don't you talk a little bit about you know, some other ways that, 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 that the stigma affects you know, both addicts and, and their families? Well, I think, I mean, actually, if I could pick up on what Kathleen just uh, uh, talked about the irony is this is actually where we need our very best people because the complexity of dealing with these issues I mean the detox alone I mean it can be you know a week two weeks I mean just the the medical management of that then dealing with all the family issues people who may be in denial the need to do interventions I mean just you know finding skilled people who can work with families and support um, it just I mean this it is a crisis for not only for the country, it's a crisis for each of these families because it can have so many impacts on health care, you know, continuing in a job, schooling, uh, inter-family uh, dynamics and, and the like. And so, um, you know, not only do we need to focus on having the, uh, you know, reducing the stigma for the workforce, we actually need the very best people because the complexity of dealing with these issues is as high as for just about anything. You know, on the financial point that you uh, raised, Scott, um, the first uh, the first resources we got for our very first recovery center in Vermont was a congressional earmark, courtesy of one of our senators. Uh, the, the term isn't in favor everywhere, but uh, it, it jump-started our efforts <laughs> right. at, at getting that uh, first recovery center going. And so there's going to have to be some federal participation. And what really concerns me is that we're now in the, what, eighth year of a recovery? Uh, these are the good times. and, and we we all know what's going to happen in the not-too-distant future. There'll be a downturn when state budgets are going to tighten up again, and we won't have the resources to commit to this and other important programs. So, so this is the time, I think, uh, that we need to, to make that commitment, and I hope everybody will. Okay. You know, one of, the, one of the things I just wanted to add, particularly for our younger people, uh, there's a move in Delaware, a number of states, toward a recovery high schools. And you think about the, the challenges that so many of our uh, young people have and many of them you know do have it and so these, this idea of setting up schools sort of specifically designed for them with the supports that are necessary and again this is an issue that that organization I mentioned attack addiction is really leading the way on and there's nobody better positioned because so many of them have lost you know their their young their young ones um, to the to the scourge right. and, well, and I'm speaking glad you of young ones you also have this generation of babies yeah. being born yeah. in NICUs um, yeah. At least a half of the births in the United States are paid for by Medicaid, and I might gather, you know, it may be higher. But what is it that those, you know, total innocents are going to need to survive and thrive? What are the health issues? What are the mental health issues? What are the services? I mean, because this is now a multi-generational, not just an impact on the addict, but what happens with those children? Because it's several. I don't. I, 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 I've seen reports and it's up to three or four percent it's terrifying. Of, ba of babies who yes. are born addicted yeah. we're obviously focusing on this rightly a, a, as a crisis there are some steps out there that are starting to work a little bit um, and I'd like to hear from each of you uh, I'm gonna start with you Ted so we, we don't neglect you um, <laughs> with something that that's working in, in your state that that you think is effective so um, Ted why don't you take it away from Ohio 
Well, I'll tell you what I hope is a success story. Uh, I'm not certain, but um, uh, last December I was driving down the highway uh, going to Athens, Ohio to teach the class, and I see a guy hitchhiking alongside the highway. I stop, pick him up. It's a cold, bitterly cold morning. He gets in my car, and, and uh, he says, thanks for stopping. Um, I said, tell me about yourself. He said, well, I just got out of prison. Uh, I'm on my way to drug treatment. Uh, I really want to kick this addiction, he said. And if you miss three sessions, they kick you out of the program. He said, I haven't missed any yet. I'm going to be late this morning, but uh, but I don't think they'll care if I just show up. I've thought about that man a lot. No car, no job, prison record, and addiction, walking to drug treatment on a very cold morning. And that gives me hope that there are people like that who will accept treatment, want treatment, and we've got a responsibility to make sure that treatment is available to them. I hope that man, I may never see him again, but I, I hope that he's a success story because I know he's trying. Great. Well, I think drug courts uh, have been successful in many cases. Um, I, I sat in for about half a day in drug court in Vermont a few years ago, and it was uh, uh, quite compelling to see people at different stages of recovery coming before the judge who was uh, um, uh, offering a carrot and stick approach. Um, perhaps um, some others have, have seen this where if someone is um, following his or her uh, agreed upon um, progress uh, protocol, then uh, uh, the judge might say, here's a, here's a ticket to a movie. Maybe you can <laughs> take a friend or a couple of tickets. Or, and if not, uh, I, I, saw the, I saw the judge uh, order uh, the defendant uh, to write a, yet another essay about the problem and to bring it back in to read at a later time. So I think in many cases those are helpful. But I have, I have a, a story very similar to Ted's. Uh, there's a, uh, it wasn't personal, but, but um, relayed to me. There's a fellow named Charlie in northwestern Vermont who was a uh, a college freshman hockey player who suffered a knee injury and was prescribed some painkillers. And, and uh, as he related the story uh, publicly, he said, uh, um, you know, I, I knew that uh, I was a tough athlete. I wasn't going to get hooked on anything. Well, you know what happened. He did. He, he got onto heroin. Uh, then he um, uh, passed bad checks to get money for drugs. He went to jail and things were looking pretty bleak. Um, he was um, um, uh, fortunately taken into a medically uh, medication-assisted treatment program in our state, and uh, and it was quite successful. And, and now Charlie is 24. Uh, he has a job. He has a condo. He has a girlfriend. Uh, he's got lots of other friends. He has two dogs, and <laughs> and I hope that there'll be a lot more folks like the young man uh, to whom Ted referred and, and Charlie from Vermont who can. Uh, who can make it and, and get onto the road to uh, get on the road to better better life? To pick up on the drug court issue, as governor of Kansas, um, we were able to pass a law in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, I guess, that um, dealt with. We wanted to make it retroactive. The Republican legislature only wanted it prospective, but that was good enough. If you were a nonviolent drug user, uh, you got an alternative sentence that stood in front of your prison sentence. And if you were successful in the program, which included uh, work training, rehab, uh, 
you actually, your prison sentence disappeared. If not, you ended up in, in prison. One was about $25,000 a year for the prison. One was closer to $2,500 a year for the uh, in-place treatment. And we actually um, were <coughs> able to empty a lot of beds that would have been used. We were on track to build a new prison that never got built. We, um, but if that can happen in a state like Kansas, um, a pretty red conservative state, it, it made sense to people as a financial alternative, as a bargain. And I think those kinds of things are uh, able to be put in play. And it's, it's one piece. Again, we need to do 15 things simultaneously at the federal and state level. And uh, uh, pulling one trigger or another probably isn't going to solve this, but trying to take advantage of the president's declaration that this is a national public health crisis and then treat it as such with resources and revenue and multiple solutions, I think could offer some possibilities mm -hmm. for brighter futures for and, these guys. And one, you know, I, one of the things that encourages me is that I think all of us and policymakers and elected officials across the country have been so humbled by the difficulty of dealing with this crisis is that more and more policymakers are going to the people themselves for ideas. Mm -hmm. Because we don't have, I mean, with you know, due respect to, to my colleagues, we don't have, you know, we, 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 we will learn so much when we go out and ask. And I know in, in Delaware, our, our Lieutenant Governor, uh, Bethany Hallong, she's actually a nurse, has convened a series of town hall meetings. And although the stigma issue is real, it has been remarkable in our state for the last couple of years, any kind of there, there, anytime there's any kind of town hall or public forum, it's standing room only because people are desperate mm -hmm. and they're looking to network with others. They're looking to uh, advocate with their uh, policymakers. And I think some of the, some of the uh, information that her, she, she's leading up a behavioral health consortium I mean, it's really, this is not about pie in the sky, 30,000 foot policy. This is about meeting people where they are. Right. Uh, and it's about more community health workers. It's about more uh, detox uh, beds. We have a, uh, a commission that reviews every overdose death to really understand uh, what's going on. And I think, um, you know, we, we really do need to be very humble. And as policymakers, we need to be willing to ask for advice from the people who are most directly impacted. You know, in yeah. Kentucky, uh, Scott, we, like Jack and, and others, were pretty successful in going after the pills. You know, we, we kind of figured out a number of things that worked in terms of, not in the treatment area still, we, we, we didn't have enough money there really, but, you know, requiring all the prescribers to use the monitoring systems and, and uh, running the pill mills out of the state, those kinds of things. And then, of course, uh, you could tell we were successful because heroin and fentanyl popped up. You know, boom, just like you said, whack-a-mole on steroids. And, uh, but in Kentucky, and I, I was honestly surprised, a little more than surprised, uh, that we were able to pass uh, needle exchange mm -hmm. legislation mm -hmm. that allows that in Kentucky. It's a local option, but it is allowed in Kentucky. Uh, when I proposed the legislation, I thought, boy, this is one thing that we're not going to get done. Uh, and but we got it done, and of course naloxone getting it, that out there is an easier call, and we got that out on the streets, and then we passed a Good Samaritan law, mm -hmm. which allows somebody that's sitting there with the person 
that overdoses and they're both using, you know, they can call 911 and not get arrested and go to jail um, because they called and so you're going to save a life. Uh, so we've, we've done some interestingly progressive things uh, in another red conservative state just like Kansas, uh, but still. It's all those K states. Uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Just states that start with K. That's exactly right. I, um, I, I wonder, you talk about needle exchange, and I go back to, you know, you're talking about consistent messaging, federal messaging. Um, that seems to be an illustration of the effectiveness of the federal messaging on AIDS, right? Because that, that's what it's about. This was a people to get beyond, you know, okay, this is something I'm uncomfortable with too. Well, this is a bigger problem that we have to do something about. Right, and, and one thing that helped us, and, and Jim actually mentioned it, is that right when I was trying to pass this in Kentucky, this case in Scott County, Indiana popped up, and, and Mike Pence, of all people, who was governor at that time, ended up having to put needle exchanges in. And so I said, look, <laughs> if, if Governor Pence can do it, we can do it. Uh, but it, obviously that's a one that really carries a stigma and I, and I understand it. But an additional benefit of it, in addition to just saving lives, is it puts the professionals in contact with the user. Right. You know, and you, you hopefully are able to begin having a conversation with that person who comes in to get a new needle of look, we've got these programs. I mean, you know, uh, let us let us work with you. Let us try to try to help. And so it helps you identify these people, and and you you actually end up being able to pull some of them into a, a treatment program. So I have a challenge, as as President Obama always liked to say, um, you know, you need a do out from a meeting. You need what the next step is. And um, I I'm delighted to be here at the Harvard School of Public Health because I think there's a unique role that public health institutions can play and this is uh, the best of the best. So um, having some kind of a very interactive database where any policymaker can go on and what works, what has been the experience, how much does it cost, in very practical terms, lots of good ideas that have worked in various states. Nobody should have to reinvent the wheel, but I'm not sure that kind of really good database exists and you know hopefully the feds could add to it but even just governors and local policymakers exchanging what are the 10 things you could do tomorrow if you're really serious about that how much it costs who are the experts in delaware and in vermont and in kentucky to call i somebody i don't see um the federal government filling that gap right now um data is disappearing not um being populated, so I think it's a great role for uh, a public health excellent institution to, to just capture data and put it in a way that's very user-friendly, very able to be accessed. And so people who want to do something right. and they only have X amount of dollars, what are the three best things they could do? Where are the gaps in, in you know Kansas or Vermont and how to put that together? I think that would be a wonderful way to at least keep the momentum going and capture people's really good ideas. I interesting recommendation, and it actually brings me to, to what I was hoping to conclude this with. Uh, I was going to ask each of each of the rest of you to um, you know offer one policy recommendation or takeaway that, that people who are watching this online, whether they be policymakers or academics, whatnot, um, can take away. And Ted, once again, I'm going to go to you first, just so we don't neglect you. Um, what's your um, What's your advice? 
Well, that uh, th- these uh, treatment programs that are being developed be closely monitored for effectiveness and that we rely only on uh, evidence-based um, um, treatment approaches. Uh, I think I think we're always in danger of uh, people looking for quick fixes, and um, this is a long-term problem that's going to take uh, comprehensive services in order to provide effective outcomes. And so I would just say let's monitor our efforts to make sure that they are credible and defensible and are science-based. We need to start a movement across this country that culminates in a national plan to attack this. And that's not going to be easy. Uh, but, but if we get our public institutions uh, involved in, and all the professionals involved, because everybody really knows this. We know that that's what we've got to do, but it, has, it doesn't really have a focus right now. And we need, to, we need to somehow focus an effort to convince this administration and Congress that it's all well and good, the pieces that you all are doing, but, but we need to treat this for what it is. I mean, this is a thing that can destroy this country if we don't get, get good control of it. And we've got a lot of examples that we've done this in the past with HIV, AIDS, and others. And we can do this if, if we just pull together and get it done. Jim. I agree with that, of course. Uh, but um, as governors, we always wanted state flexibility. Uh, one size doesn't fit all. And, and so I think it has to have that component. Um, I think of the waivers that Secretary Sebelius graciously granted to Vermont to uh, make us the healthiest state in America for a number of years running. Um, and we, we, we've got some faith-based uh, recovery programs in our state that, that seem to be working quite well. So, so uh, with a local flavor. And I guess um, uh, the comprehensiveness of this challenge uh, keeps um, uh, coming back into my mind. Uh, Jack mentioned the community health workers and uh, the, the patient-centered medical home where, where somebody can get access to all the kinds of professionals that are necessary and perhaps uh, be an early uh, indicator that there's a, an issue that needs to be addressed. So uh, a, a targeted approach, a national message, uh, but one that uh, works within the context of each individual state. And since we're having this conversation at the Harvard School of Public Health, I'll address your questions really speaking to the students, which is the researchers, and the, the, the academics and the advocates need each other. We do need a real plan. It's got to be an evidence-based plan. But you've also got to team up with those who understand how to advocate and how to build a coalition uh, because we really, we really need both. Yep. Great. Well, I want to thank all you governors for, for being here today. Uh, I want to thank everybody in the room for, for being so attentive and, and our many viewers online. And I'd like to invite you to come back next week um, for another Harvard School of Public Health forum uh, the col on college students and mental health confronting an emerging crisis. That's on April 17th. Thanks for joining us. This has been a production of the forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forum.com hsph.org. Thank you for sharing the forum.